0: All right, our favorite from the CD, This American Life, 11 self-revelatory radio monologues hosted by Ira Glass. In this case, it is an interview with Mr. Jack Hit, titled Peter Pan. What could be more American than the person who sees something they've never done before, dreams they could do it, goes after that dream? Well, let's begin today with a woman who dreams of directing a play in the small town where she lives. college town somewhere below the Mason-Dixon line in the hills of Appalachia, a town which will remain for our purposes today unnamed. I don't think she had ever directed
1: uh, and and she claimed to have acted and it was never really quite clear just what her credentials were but she had she um, had managed to convince the the local theater department of this college that she should direct a
0: production of Peter Pan. When he was in the 10th grade in 1973 Jack Hitt saw her production, and like everybody else in town, he heard about it for weeks beforehand.
1: Slowly but surely, you know, you began to hear, you know, sort of rumors about this production. For example, I know that they had spent a lot of money renting these flying apparatuses out of New York, and apparently only a, there's like one company and a handful of these apparatuses, and so to get them was a major coup.
0: This is a story not just of a mediocre play or a terrible play, When it comes right down to it, it's not even a story about a play. This is a story about a fiasco and about what makes a fiasco. And one ingredient of many fiascos is that great, massive, heart-wrenching chaos and failure are more likely to occur when great ambition has come into play, when plans are big, expectations great, hopes at their highest.
1: And what you have to understand is that everybody in this sort of community understood that there were there was certainly a sort of air of everyone sort of reaching beyond their own grasp. Every actor (laughs) was sort of in a role that was just a little too big for them. Uh, Every aspect of the, the set and the crew um, and, you know, rumors had sort of cooked around. You know, there was this huge crew, there were lots of things being painted. See, and but
0: this, in fact, is one of the criteria for greatness, is that everyone is just about to reach just beyond their grasp because that, that is when greatness can occur.
1: That's, that's right. That's right. And maybe greatness could have occurred.
0: But what happens when greatness does not occur? What happens, in fact, when fumble leads to error, leads to mishap, and before you know it, you have left the realm of ordinary mistake and chaos, and you have entered into the more ethereal, specialized realm of fiasco. What we present next is a philosophical inquiry, perhaps the first ever as far as we know, into what makes a fiasco, what takes our ordinary lives that extra distance into fiasco. We begin this fable of everyday life with opening night.
1: Opening night comes, and you know, well, almost everybody in the area in the you know ten mile radius of this theater knows somebody in this production. So the place is pretty much packed. Um, and I don't know if you remember the opening moment of Peter Pan, but it's the three little kids sleeping in their bed, and uh, Peter Pan comes flying in the window. And in this in this particular production, the um, there's a big uh, bed with all the three kids in it. And off to the left, I remember, uh, is a big, huge wardrobe and there's a large window there and a little bureau. And Peter Pan comes in and, uh, you know, and has a little speech where he says, you know, anybody can fly. Why? With just a little magic dust, one can fly. And, um, and Peter Pan sort of sprinkles this magic dust in the air. And sure enough... Um, the kids sort of suddenly just lurch into the air um, and it becomes clear right away that, that the people that they've hired to run these flying apparatuses really aren't quite clear on how they actually work. So instead of the, the kids um sort of sailing, you know, gracefully to and fro. They sort of hang in the air like puppets, just sort of dangling there, <laughs> and sort of getting jerked up an inch or two or back and forth. And they, And then they,
0: sometimes they're just stationary, just just, just Yeah, so just hanging just there like
1: blood. a like a like a spider. And then uh, several of them start to to sort of uh circumscribe these circles in the air, uh where it's clear that the, the the people running the, the machines have just sort of set them off on these kind of oval courses that spiral farther and farther <laughs> out. <laughs> and if you're sitting in the audience, there was clearly a sense of fear on the faces of these people. Um, of,
0: the, of the actors? The
1: actors. The actors actually, you, you could sense their lack of confidence, shall we say, <laughs> in the, the, the people running the machines
0: in the back. So and they, wait, wait, and, and the audience reaction to this point is just, are they laughing?
1: No one is laughing. Everyone, now this is one of the great things about audiences, especially in a live theater production, is that they're very forgiving. They want the show to work. And so everyone is sort of gripping their chair a little tightly. Right. You know, we, we feel for them. You right. know, they're up there, they're embarrassing themselves for us. You know, We all.
0: identify with them. Right. We are become them.
1: And so the audience, I think, was very forgiving and very understanding of this this moment but there was one one moment that in this first opening scene that kind of put the audience on notice and that's when as the kids are sort of jerking up and down and swinging back <laughs> and forth and certain and sort of going around in these ovals at one point the little the littlest one the little boy is is sort of being flung around a little too <laughs> <laughs>
0: A, a little too hard. And, well he uh, has the least mass to resist whatever the machinery is doing to him. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so and and so he's flying around the circle and, and and the
1: audience sort of sees this coming and there's a real <laughs> sense of pain and and gripping of the chair and white knuckleness. As the kid suddenly does a just a an enormous splat into the wardrobe. I mean, and it's clear that he's hurt, you know, <laughs> and he comes off of it sort of, you know, a little dazed. And, uh, and then, of course, he's jerked up in the air a little bit, and often a little too high, so that he's suddenly sort of in the workings. He sort of he sort of left the stage itself. He's now up there with the lights, you know, and then all of a sudden he just sort of suddenly he would just plummet back down to the stage and and be. Caught up just before he hit the floor, and and uh, <laughs> it was it was hard to watch because, <laughs> as you can tell, it's a it's an an incredibly funny moment. But but like I say, the audience was still in this very forgiving mode and no one said a word. We just all sat there sort of holding our breath. And there's that weird tension of being in the audience thinking, oh, oh my goodness, they have gotten off to a very bad start. Oh, this, this is not good. Right. And we feel for them.
0: Um, May I just interrupt for just a moment? to yeah. Just to just, just say now, now, at this point, because after all, we are not just joined here together on the radio, you and I today to laugh at the foibles of the unfortunate. No, no, we're here to enumerate the qualities of a fiasco. At this point, we are not yet in the territory of fiasco. No, no, because, you know,
1: like I say, audiences are forgiving. And they, you know, one or one or two mistakes, even big ones like
0: this, they're going to let that ride. Yes, they are. We did. We did. We were very good. And uh, so we are not yet at fiasco. We are at a sort of normal level of mishap. Right.
1: what happens uh, immediately after this they disappear to Never Never Land and if you remember the the stage goes dark and then when the lights come up there's Captain Hook and he's giving his first (laughs) opening soliloquy about how evil he is and what a menace he is and how he you know harms people and hates children and it's all that good stuff and so Captain Hook is out there, and he looks great. He's got one of those big old fat hats and, a, and a, um, this great hook and these wild-looking boots and everything.
0: And people and he, are feeling more confident. Something's happening.
1: It's a good sign. It's a good sign. And he's in charge. This guy, is, he's got a bad mustache, and he is certainly evil. Yes. And um, the audience is totally in his pocket. He's, he's speaking away and gesturing wildly and, and going on and on about how bad he is. And then at a certain point, as he gestures... <laughs> his hook and the entire black casing up to his elbow flings off of his hand and flies into the audience and punches an old lady in the gut. <laughs> and now... He is bad. He is very bad. He had like the worst ad lib I've ever heard. I mean, what do you say at that point? Because of course his hand is now nakedly exposed to the audience. <laughs>
0: A tough moment for any actor.
1: uh, Very, very (laughs) If the premise
0: of your character is that you have a hook, your name is Captain Hook. (laughs) (laughs) Literally, all that's going to happen for the rest of the show is people are going to refer to you by that hook. Your entire motivation as a character is the fact that you're, (laughs) is that your arm was eaten off by an alligator and that you have to have a... The entire plot... And you have a hook. ...stems from that fact. Right. Right. And now, suddenly,
1: you have no hook. (laughs) In fact, you have five fingers on a hand. As if a
0: miracle by the
1: Lord. (laughs) Captain Hook said, You know, they just don't make those hooks like they used to. That was actually the ad lib. I will never forget.
0: And, and so now, have we arrived at a turning point in our fiasco?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's clear now that the audience is giving way. Something has been lost. Some sense of decorum, that, that, that little bit of forgiveness that the audience has for the actors. And empathy. And empathy. It's beginning to dissipate. Well, there was a split in the audience. There were the, sort of the younger people who were the least forgiving. They started to go first, okay? So the high school students, you know, a couple of college students maybe, they started to laugh out loud. And I'll be honest Ira, I might have been one of those first people to laugh. I was in the 10th grade. Right. It was hard to not laugh at this, <laughs> you know. Um, but then whatever restraint that, you know, the audience had, it just evaporated at this point because there were a number of things that happened in <laughs> quick succession that just made it impossible to hold any sense of decorum. Um, Which for, are? For example, Tinkerbell appears for the first time uh, around this moment and um Tinkerbell is essentially a light bulb on an extension cord. And uh, what? Yeah, and this was, you know, this was the director's idea of like, you know, you know, being raw, being very modern. You know, Tinkerbell was just going to be you know this literal light bulb dangling from an extension cord whereas
0: in 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 other productions what they do is that someone will shine a light shine a light or they'll just a beam of focused light and then that pinprick of light is supposed to be tinkerbell that's right
1: Mm -hmm. or something like that or nothing at all and people just address the invisible you know sprite right right well that did not happen in this case. This bulb comes just dangling down and sort of <laughs> hangs around <laughs> this naked, white bulb? bulb. Just hangs around and people are talking to it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Tinkerbell, Tinkerbell must have had an appearance in the first act, but but it was somewhere in here that people just started laughing <laughs> at this. Um, then an, 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 another thing that happened was um, later on in the scene, if you remember, Wendy gets uh, trapped on an island, and uh, and she she spots a kite that's floating by, and flying by, and she's supposed to grab it and attach it to her back and fly off. Right. Right. Well, of course, the kite is attached to the uh, flying apparatus line. <laughs> right. And it it gets closer and closer to her. She's standing on this little paper mache hill, and. Mm-hmm. Um, But the flying apparatus people can't quite get it close enough to her to reach. So she has to step out into the waters that she's just told us is filled with crocodiles to to grab it. She finally gets the kite. And when she yanks on it, it pops off the flying apparatus. (laughs) And the hook goes zinging up into the lights and catches. (laughs) (laughs) So now there is this big loop of wire
0: hanging
1: (laughs) in front of the stage. And there's Wendy holding the kite. And uh, she ad-libbed as best she could, as I remember. She she sort of said, on second thought, maybe I can swim. And with that, she walked off the stage, sort of motioning her arms like you would do the swim, the dance, in 1965. (laughs) ¶¶ So she does that. At this point, I mean, the audience, the actors are just falling apart. They are so frightened of the audience. There are just belly laughs rolling up to the stage from the audience. People are howling with laughter at every mistake. And now any small mistake just takes on these, these, these just, you know, it's just any instigation for laughter is just enough for this audience. And now the old people have given it up. Everyone has quit being nice now there's just this kind of frightening roar that comes from the audience every time there's a mistake
0: well what happened at some point the audience turned and realized oh wait i realize what's going on here this is a fiasco yeah
1: this is a fiasco and what's really interesting about a fiasco is that once it starts to
0: tumble down the audience
1: wants to push it further along
0: oh they get hungry for more fiasco oh yeah if the if the play proceeded perfectly, they would be disappointed. Oh, it
1: would have been a grave disappointment had there not been just one more mistake after another, one more embarrassment after another. Now the reason they're there is to chronicle (laughs) these embarrassments. This is why I have remembered this this play for 25 years. Uh, Anyway, so in this particular scene, what was going to happen was that the Indians were going to throw rope ladders down from the balcony and climb down these rope ladders, into the audience and, and, you know, move among the audience in their very sort of scary, savage way and frighten us. Right. Anyway, I knew about this scene because my friend David, who I went to high school with, was in it. And um, so when David was climbing over the top of this balcony to uh, climb down the rope, he lost his footing and fell to the floor from the balcony, a distance of about 15 to 20 feet. A good oh a good fall. That's horrible. Yeah, and he landed on both of his feet and sprained both of his ankles and, of course, curled into a fetal position and began to cry. Right. He was really, really hurt. Now, to, <laughs> to, to appreciate the horrible moment <laughs> that I'm now describing, also understand that it's a Friday night, we are in a college town, and there is a volunteer fire and ambulance department. And in order to summon the rescuers from wherever they are an alarm is sounded that can be heard for five miles that alarm is located right over this theater so the alarm goes off okay this is an air raid siren it is so loud you you can put your fingers in your ear and it's still hurting your ears we're right under it it can be heard for five miles <laughs> <laughs> In a minute, And then, of course, three minutes later, busting through the door of the theater are these, you know, 15 firemen who are in boots, hats. They got hoses. They don't know what it is. All they know is that they've been sent out on a call. Right. And to sort of add to the chaos, the, the director, <laughs> of course, has sort of flogged the actors that the show must go on. No matter what. So no matter what. So while all of this is happening and people are sort of, several people are attending to David and other people are, have just now like decided that since the firemen are here, he's going to be fine. They can start laughing. And now the audience has, has just completely lost control. <laughs> people are standing up in their seats and shouting for more. They want blood. I mean, at this point, people are actually injured in the production <laughs> and they want more. Somehow that's how this entire play ended. We got transported directly in touch (laughs) with our animal being. (laughs) Our baser selves. Right. But, you know, that's almost as rare, if not more so, than a great production.
0: We want to thank uh, the good people at Chicago Public Radio in general and, uh, of course, Ira Glass in particular for producing This American Life. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break.